Hey, this is Carmen Apice, and I'm on Musicians on the Record. So let's get rocking. Welcome to Musicians on the Record. I'm David Ward. You've heard the music, now hear their story. And you have definitely heard this guy's music. On the show today, we have rock drumming royalty, Carmine Apice on the show. Man, if you are a classic rock lover like me, if you're a classic rock geek like me, you are going to love this interview. So many great stories with Carmine. And uh, so if you know another classic rock geek, please share it with them, too, so they can also enjoy it. Carmine has played with so many legendary acts. He began his career just by being inspired to play drums by Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich. Then he got his first big break with Vanilla Fudge, who appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show twice in the late 60s. And then he transitioned over to playing with legendary rock guitarist Jeff Beck in Beck, Boger, and a Piece. And then even more success, international superstardom Rod Stewart in the late 70s, playing on such classic hits as Hot Legs and Do You Think I'm Sexy, which is a number one song worldwide in which he co-wrote. So please get ready for this. Buckle in. Join us as we hear this incredible musician story of a classic rock and roll life in his own words. We're going to explore all of those stories as well as his long friendship with Jimi Hendrix and the last time that he saw Jimi alive and Led Zeppelin's John Bonham. Carmine was certainly a mentor of a young John Bonham back in the day when early Led Zeppelin was just coming up. We'd love to hear from you wherever you're listening from in the world, and please let us know which musician story you'd most love to hear. We'd love to have you join us. Subscribe to the audio podcast here, and if you want to watch all of these interviews, including the one with Carmine, well, we filmed them too, and they live on our YouTube page, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and our website at musiciansontherecord.com. This is my time with Carmine Apice. Thank you. It's good to be here. Great to have you here. So many stories that I want to talk with you about. But let's start with what are you up to today as far as drumming and music? Well, I just got off uh, the weekend uh, with the Rascals. We, uh, we were in California. I'm in my home in California now. Um, and we, uh, we just did two shows. One was um, Friday night at the Anaheim at the Grove. And Saturday night was a beautiful, crazy venue up in uh, Saratoga, California. And it was uh, the mountain winery, they call it. And it was like a, a you know, like a, a totally amphitheater kind of place with a stage in front of this building that looked like a castle. Wow, beautiful. You know? And it was outdoors. It was, it was beautiful. Really, really great show. Amazing. Great venue. And we had a great show. The audiences for the Rascals with me in it had been great. Uh, great reactions, and uh, you know, so I'm doing that, and we just we just booked another uh, a Peace Brothers gig okay. in November, so we have a weekend in October, and we're going to have another weekend in November, and in between that, I got <coughs> Rascals and Vanilla Fudge shows. 
Wow. So Vanilla Fudge has reformed, gotten back together. Uh, we've been together since the 1999. Got it. Yeah. But yeah. still going strong, do, still doing yeah, shows. Yeah, still going. Still yeah. going. Did shows, did albums. We did just release a, a DVD live at Sweden Rock. Wow. The same token on the same uh, week last, oh, was this 216, um, I played Thursday night with Vanilla Fudge at Sweden Rock, which we videoed and audio. And then Saturday night I played with King Cobra. Amazing. In the same festival. Wow. And, uh, and we video, uh, we audio recorded that. And with that, we uh, just released a live album, King Cobra Live at Sweden Rock. Wow. So you're, you're still a busy guy. There's no slowing down for you with drumming and, and rock and roll. No, I mean, this is my hobby. Right. I get paid to not to play. I get paid to travel. Right, right. And get on the planes at, you know, wee hours in the mornings and, you know, driving vans and buses and, you know, SUVs to the gig and right. and back home in the hotel and wake up and do it again. Right. Yeah. Playing the, the fun. Playing free. Free. Yeah. That's it's awesome. fun. I love that. I love that attitude. That's great. So um, the what's that like playing with the Rascals these days? Obviously, Dino Danelli, another great drummer like yourself, playing good loving, grooving. All those great. It's songs. a lot. Of, it's a lot of fun. It's it, it's almost like playing with Rod Stewart again. You know, it's, a, it's that kind of music versus like playing with Cactus, which is a jam band, and Vanilla Fudge, which is a combination arrangement and jam band. Now the Rascal, there's some jamming in there. Matter of fact, uh, I brought to the attention of Felix, who's you know like the main guy. I said, you know, when you guys were coming up, you were a musicians band. And I said, that's what we need to do again is get that. So I get a little solo in the, in the show. We have a tremendous bass player, Jimmy Keneally, a great bass player, a great second keyboard player, a singer. We do all the backgrounds, the three of us. And Gene plays guitar. There's a second guitar player also. And so it sounds like the records. We even have horns every market. We, we, we bring in horns from every market. You know, and we rehearse in the afternoon with them for an hour. And they read the charts. Right. I give them credit. That's great. That's awesome. Great. How do you take care of yourself physically these days compared to in the earlier days, knowing that, you know, drumming can be physically taxing on the body? On the early days, I didn't care. Yeah, yeah early days we partied, we right. stayed up all night. You know, I never did cocaine or anything, but I, I was never really a drinker, you know. You know, a little bit of uh, psychedelics now and again. But, uh, you know, but now, you know, I make sure I, I get at least six, seven hours sleep a night. I go to the gym when I'm home every other day. And even when we're on the road, sometimes I go to a, a gym before breakfast. And then I would play that night. But when when I play, it's really my cardio. You know? Right. When I do my solo, it's I can feel my heart rate's probably about 130, you know. That's great. It is great exercise, right? No doubt. No doubt about it. Yes. yes. The other thing that I thought was very cool that you have done of late in, in more of my research is your uh, art project, Purple, if I have that right. And, right, right. Um, I don't know if you would describe that as psychedelic, but I love all of the colors and it's based on the drums. Can you talk more about that? Well, what it is really is they put me in a room and they've done it with Carl Palmer and Billy Cobb and a few other guys. And they give them these glowing drumsticks and they play grooves and they play patterns, you know. 
But I figured, you know, it's really not about the grooves and the patterns. It's about the look of it. Right. So I told him to give me four sticks. <laughs> so like I Billy use four Cole. sticks. Yeah. yeah, like four sticks. And when I'm doing these things, they're, they're filming it for different cameras from different angles. Yeah. And then they put it all together. Right. In one, like, painting. And they put it on canvas. And my series was the first series to be in 3D. So it comes with 3D glasses. And uh, it's interesting, you know. Yeah, I have one in New York. I, I, they were making me one for my house here in L.A. I haven't got it yet, but uh, I think they forgot about it, actually. <laughs> and then I have another art thing that I do with, uh, if you go to uh, Ed Heck, you know, edheck.com, you see it's called, uh, like, there's one painting called Drum City. But basically the concept is everything's made of drums. So, like, the city's made of drums with these beautiful colors. So I draw the city made of drums, and then he projects it on a, on a canvas, and he paints, outlines what I draw. And then he puts the colors in it. And then, like, you know, there's, a, there's like, the pyramids, there's a Stonehenge, the Leaning Tower of Drums, and everything has drum in it. You know, music and art are so closely combined, and they have been. For, have you always done art along with your music, drawing, painting? Well, not really. Uh, this The drum art with the glowing drumstick came, came about to my manager. Uh, Bruce Pilato manages Carl Palmer. Carl did it. So they asked him if I wanted to do it, and I said, sure, I'll do it. And they're in L.A., so it just... Right. It just was uh, taking my drums down to uh, SIR, shutting the lights off and playing. You know? Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it and, looks like a lot of fun. But, but I always drew drum sets and you know, gold records and stuff just like that. But, but, but it looks like kitty art. And that's what this guy, Ed Hex art, looks like. It's kitty art. So I figured, hey, you know, let me make things out of drums. A city. You know, like a bridge going across the, like a, like a scene, like a Manhattan, Brooklyn scene. Yeah. The the bridge going across is a hi hat stand. That's great. You I know, love it. And, I love it. You know, and like the like the Seattle, the tower is a, is like a hi hat. You know. Yeah. Of course, right? Tower. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there's a, there's a lot of fun. You know, yeah. so there's a lot of different ones. There's there's a the moon landing on the moon. You know, and the and the, the, the uh, the moon, the moon landing uh, ship is made of drums and cymbals and stuff. It's great. Yeah. It's great. I got to check that out. It's crazy stuff. Yeah, no doubt. no doubt. Let's talk about drums, your story. When were you first inspired to play and fall in love with the drums? Well, I guess it was my cousin Joey was a drummer, and he had the drum, you know, Slingland Blues, I think it was a blue pearl Slingland drum set. And every time we went over to his house, we would, you know, I would naturally zoom into the, his room. We had the drums, and I'd start banging on the drums, you know. And then when I go home, I bang it on the pots and pans. So my parents kept getting, you know, the, the hint, and they bought me a toy set of drums because I was young at the time, and I used to break them. And then, you know, I would bang on pots and pans, but, but, but it wouldn't be, you know, like a steady thing. Every time I went to his house, I'd get inspired. And finally, uh, I don't know, maybe I was 11, and they bought me a, a, a drum set for Christmas and my birthday because I'm a December baby, you know. Okay. So sometimes that worked out good. I get a bigger gift, one gift instead of two little ones. Right. So this one big gift was a $55 uh, 
drum set that had a bass drum, a snare, and a cymbal that they clip on cymbal onto the bass drum, you know, one of those. Yep. They bought it at Sam Ash at the very first Sam Ash store. And, uh, and I set it up downstairs in my cellar in Brooklyn. And I go down there and I play. You know, a lot of people would ask me, like in interviews, what was your first album? Expecting me to say, like, The Beatles or Elvis Presley or Buddy Holly. You know, mine was Cooper and Rich. You know, the album that uh, had the two drum sets on the cover. And then, and I used to look at that album cover and see, like, Gene Krupa's setup was right next to Buddy's, but I could see Gene's stand was going through Buddy's bass drum, and I never understood how, because that was the first time they did, like, Photoshopping, you know. And uh, it was a superimposed of a Buddy's bass drum. And, uh, and But I knew that album. I, I played to it. I learned every note of it. And uh, it was not... A few years later, I didn't realize, you know, that the, there's a part where they take fours. I thought it was all Buddy. Uh-huh. But I, but now, as I learned more about drumming, I realized that it was Buddy and Gene together. How had you even heard about Gene Krupa? Was your dad listening to My him? mother. Your mother was listening to him. My mother, well, my mother didn't listen to me. When I started playing drums, she used to tell me about him, okay. that she used to go see him at the New York Paramount. You know, and he would have everybody dancing in the aisles to his drum rhythms. So that, you know, so, you know, I guess from my mother and my father then told me as well, then I, you know, they bought me the album, the Cooper and Rich album. And, and that was my first album that I played to and learned. Well, I mean, who who better than Krupa and Rich yeah. to learn well, the drums then, from, right? And after that, it was Joe Morello's records and Joe Morello with Dave Brubeck and Max Roach. And really... I would say it was Joe Morello, Gene Krupa, Buddy Rich, and Max Roach that really formed my style, along with my drum teacher, Dick Bennett. You know, he taught me how to read and and, uh, and how to play big band and how to play jazz. And, and I went through the Chapin book, and I went through all the classic books, the Syncopation book, and and uh, I went through it forward and backwards, and which developed a lot of my uh, coordination by doing that. And then later, you know, because really... Rock music didn't have great drumming at the time. It had okay drumming, like Twist and Shout by the Isley Brothers and all that. But Motown had really good drumming in it. And then the James Brown record, uh, Live at the uh, uh, Apollo, was awesome. But when I was a kid, my my older brother went went to one of these Alan Freed rock and roll shows, you know, in which they had Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry and Frankie Lyman. And he wouldn't take me. Because he was going with all his cool friends with the motorcycle jackets, with the hair slicked back, but he wouldn't take me, so my mother took me. Okay. And I went to see, you know, the Brooklyn Paramount shows of Alan Street, and they had two drummers in it, and it was like a big band rock band with two drummers. And I said, "Wow!" And you know, they didn't have great miking systems in those days, so the power of the drums was coming right off the stage, and. It was awesome. That, that like really inspired me to, to go home and play my drums. You know, right. Right. yeah, because who yeah. you know who you're talking about is Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa, Morello, and um, uh, Max. That's Max. Max Roach. I mean, this is the Mount Rushmore of drummers. Mount Rushmore of jazz yeah. drummers, right? Yeah. Um, oh, totally. So, so that's a for some people might say that's a pretty big 
switch from that kind of drumming all the way to rock drumming. Um, well, when I grew up, I didn't just play rock. I played jazz gigs. I had this, uh, this sax player named John DeLello, who was like a John Coltrane. He was like, you know, really, all these 32nd notes on the sax. And, and I had a great keyboard player that played left-hand bass, you know, and a, and a fairly good guitar player. And we would play jazz gigs, you know. We'd play all these, you know, Satin Doll and, uh, and One O'Clock Jump and all that stuff. And, and then the next night, I'd play a rock gig with a different band. And that would be Twist and Shout and uh, At the Hop and, you know, and stuff like that. And then the next day, I might play a Sweet Sixteen party. Which would be society music, you know, like the lady, the ladies, a tramp, and wow. playing with brushes and playing cha chas and merengues and wow. mambos, and you know, so I grew up playing a, a, an array of music all my life. So when I played rock, you know, I, I naturally liked it, and then when rock started getting more involved, and uh, I actually saw Dino Danelli, who I'm replacing with the Rascals, uh, play. At the Metropole, he opened up for Gene Krupa. Wow. And and Dino played some really cool grooves, like, you know, like boom, boom, bap, boom, boom, bap, boom, 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 bap, boom, boom, bap, boom, boom, bap, boom. And I was like four years younger than him, and I was going, wow, that's really cool. And I don't know if he wrote it out or if I wrote it out, but I got talking to him after his set. He also told me to put shredded newspaper in my bass drum to muffle up some of the um, overtones that, you know, you don't want. And, and varnished the inside of the bass drum. So I started doing that. And when I started getting endorsed by Ludwig, I had them varnish the insides of my bass drum in the beginning. Yeah. And then a lot of, I think they still put a coating of something on the inside of the bass drum. So I don't know if it came from me telling Ludwig to do it or if it just somebody else came up with the idea. But, but the Dino Donelli told me to do it, you know. And so you're still putting newspaper in yeah. your bass drum at this point? Yeah, it's ironic. You know, when I play the gigs with, with the Rascals, I got the newspaper in there. Right. It's hard to find newspaper these days with all its... Uh, yeah, I know. I did, you're right. Because sometimes when we do these flying gigs, I have a drum set that we carry the drum heads. You know, the, the uh, Felix and Jeans Rascals, Carmine, a piece. Yeah. And we take the head off and I, you know, I should carry around like a couple of newspapers with me. Yeah, but we always ask me, can we get a newspaper? And they usually have something. Okay. You know? okay. Not necessarily like a like a Daily News or a New York Times, but some sort of uh, you know local paper that shows you what's going on in town. You know. Right. Right. What would you say about your tuning specifically on the drum, either bass drum or uh, if somebody well, wanted to get the Carmine a piece sound? I don't have any particular way of tuning. I tune the toms in thirds, like bum, bum, bum. So you can go like bum, 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 like in the mood. Yeah. You can play in the mood on the toms. Okay. Uh, um, bass drums, it just varies, you know. It varies on the drum and the, the, what the wood is made of. Like I'm using this D-Drum Max kit now okay. with uh, – with UV1 heads okay. on the toms yeah. and on the snare drum. And I've got that kit on the East Coast with a, a stock D-drum, bass drum uh, batter head, that whatever comes with it, and I, with the newspaper. And, and the bass drum sound great, and the toms sound great with those heads. 
Now I got the duplicate kit in LA. I played for the first time Friday. I didn't have the UV one heads. I had G2s on the toms. Okay. Totally different sound. Yeah. I like it better with UV ones. So I just ordered some UV ones from Evans to send out here so I can put them on the uh, the toms and the snare as well. You know, I have to. That UV head works great on my snare. Yeah. I have the uh, five-inch brass Carmine D drum snare. As the engraving and everything, awesome. and it sounds really good, yeah, you know. Absolutely, it's fantastic. You know, so if we keep going with that story, you're a, a young kid, a teenage kid. You're starting to work professionally pretty early. What was the dream that was starting to develop of what you wanted to do with music? I wanted to be a famous drummer. Okay. I used to practice my autograph when I was twelve. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I didn't uh, you know, rock stars that didn't exist then as rock stars. Right. So it wasn't, you know, I want to be a rock like today. People say I want to be a rock star like it's an occupation. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. my girlfriend who, uh, Leslie Gold, she's been on the radio for years. And she said, you know, there's, there's people growing up that want to be rock stars, you know. Right. And like, it's like, I want to be an electrician. Right. You know? Exactly. Yeah. So what was... it's not easy. So I wanted to be a famous drummer. and. And, uh, you know, and I worked through my teens. I bought my first car, brand new Chevy in 1964 from the money I made playing. Yeah. You know, yeah. I put the down payment. My parents co-signed for me. And then I uh, made the payments. And I was very proud of the fact that I bought my own car and I was 17. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And so the definition of being a famous drummer at that point for you was you wanted to be on the Gene Krupa level? Yeah, I wanted to be like like a Gene Krupa, but I didn't know how to get there. Sure. You know, but I was also happy doing like my drum teacher did. You know, he he taught during the week, and he did gigs on the weekend, and he made a you know, good living. Right. And I bought a house. He had uh, a beautiful basement downstairs, finished basement, soundproof with his drums, and you know, and so I was happy if I would be able to work on the weekends, right. and then. You know, during the week, give lessons and, you know, make a good living. And, and that was good. Right. Not until I met the Vanilla Fudge that I actually think about making hit records. Right. You know, before that, I was playing clubs. I played clubs with Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. You know, we played clubs with the Vanilla Fudge when we were called the Pigeons with, with a, um, a group called the Hassles that had Billy in it, you know. Uh, Billy Joel, that is. Oh. And, uh, you know, uh, the Vagrants had a group called, uh, the, uh, had Leslie West in a group called the Vagrants. Yeah, but we were all just trying to make it right. at that point. Right. But before that, I didn't want to, I really cared. I mean, even Jimi Hendrix, you know, we'd go up to a, uh, a prostitute's apartment where we played in Manhattan, and he'd be talking about making it. Yeah. And, I'd say, yeah, that would be great, but I didn't really have a dream of making it. I guess he did. Right. You know, right. next time I saw him was in England, he made it, and I was in Vanilla Fudge. You know. Well, I think you made it as well. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you connected with him, you know, in your book "Stick It," which is uh, been reading more of it. It's fantastic. It's a it's a rock and roll roller coaster ride, is what I thought it was. It is. It uh, is. You connected with Jimmy when he was Jimmy James, and you were uh, in Thursday's Children, right? I, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And we played, we played these gigs together. You know, in New York, you had all these 
clubs that people played, even the rascals, you know, we saw them in the clubs before they made it. That's when they were the musicians, musicians band, you know. Felix played left-hand bass with his hand and his feet. It was awesome. You know, and, and Jimmy was playing that, and uh, we were playing it, and a lot of other people played it. I played it with bands with horns, without horns. With, with, I never had a bass player until, King, until Tim Bogart. I always had left-hand bass. Oh, was that right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Because we saw the, we saw the soul band, this black group that had there were a trio and a singer. They had a, a world of piano who played left hand bass, a guitar, and a singer. You know, and and they sounded great. You know, right. and the left hand bass really filled it up. Sure. He ran it through like a Fender basement amp. You know, and it was really awesome. So that's what I did. Sometimes it's all you need, right? Even had an accordion player that played left-hand bass on the accordion. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get more accordion in rock and roll, Carmine, right? So <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Let's talk about Vanilla Fudge and you connecting with them and the ups and downs of that band. Well, we, um, I was playing in the club, Choo Choo Club, and they, Mark and Tim came in, and they, they had heard that I was a drummer that could sing and had a good right foot. And I was into, like, R&B, you know. So they came in, they saw me play, and when we took a break, they came over and they said, hey, you know, I'm Mark Stein, Tim Boger, we have a band called The Pigeons. We're looking for a drummer, and, you know, we want to know if maybe you'd be interested in auditioning to play with us because we have a manager that's going to put us on salary and we're going to really try and make it and make hit records. You know, right. again, I was like making good money with Thursday's children, working four nights a week. Yeah. I bought my car, you know, it was only a, a year and a half after I had that car. And uh, I didn't know, you know, right. I said, oh, I'll come down and check it out. But when I went down and checked it out, I saw the, the club their manager owned, that they were going to play there all the time. And he was going to give us a salary, whether we worked or not. Yeah. And. I said, you know, maybe this could be good. It's a good gig. So, right? yeah, so I, you know, I, I call it my, you know, when you think about things to do, you know, you weigh it out. Here's, here's a positive, here's a negative. So I came up with more positive, and I call that my change of life decision. Right. You know, because when I made that decision, it changed my life. Right. Yeah. How old were you at that point when you joined the Fudge? Uh, let me see. I was... 19. 19, yeah. We were called the Pigeons at the time. Pigeons, yeah. yeah. And somebody somehow said, you got to change the name, right? Yeah, Ahmed Erdogan from Atlantic Records. Right. Didn't like the name. Got it. Yeah. And, and I was reading in your book, and I've had the chance to talk to other folks, the first time you heard your hit on the radio, what was that like? Oh, it was unbelievable. It was magic. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I had this, I, was, I got married. Because to get out of the draft, right? And then I was, I wasn't really into the, being married. After after I became 4F, as you read in the book, yeah. I I tried to get out of the marriage. And my parents said, "No, we got 200 people coming. You're getting married." Right. You know, a lot of pressure. Nine months later, nine months later, I got an annulment anyway. Yeah. But but during the like the first six months, I was into it. And then I was playing with the pigeons. And I met this beautiful, really gorgeous Italian girl from Queens, and I kind of fell in love with her. So on the on the sly, I'd always have her with me, you know. And 
basically I uh, was in the car with her when I first heard it mm. on the radio. And I was like, wow. And I was like punching her on the radio. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was exciting. You know, yeah, definitely, definitely a magic moment. Another magic moment for you guys with the vanilla fudge was of course, a couple of times being on the Ed Sullivan show. Please talk yep. about that. You know, you, you never really saw him much. He'd come in and say hello to you the first day of rehearsal. You had like four days rehearsal. And then then when you go on, you take take a picture of it like either before or after the show. So that was that was it. But the experience was actually playing the show. Because I remember going down the elevator and the guy I asked the ele- elevator operator, hey, how many people watch the show? And he said, oh, about 50 million. And I felt my stomach just turn, like, oh, my God. Yeah. And I felt a little bit of uh, anxiety for a minute until I actually hit the drum set. Once I hit the drum set and I started playing, it went away. But it was uh, an amazing experience because we had our own sound guy uh, helping with the sound, and we sounded pretty damn good on that show. And from that day on, everybody was raving about that show. And then we, a year later, we went on again when we had another hit record, Shotgun, which was top 15 single. And we went on there. The first time we went on Ed Sullivan, we didn't have a hit single yet. Okay. We had a, uh, a number four album. Wow. And we were the first band to ever get a, a, a top 10 album without a smash single. Wow. Yeah, so... And so did that make the hit for you, being on Ed Sullivan well, the first time? It, it kept the, hit, the album hit going. But then they, so that was in February. In, uh, when was it? In September of 68. That's when we were on the first time. September 68. Uh, they re-released You Keep Me Hanging On. And the album was falling down. It was like maybe number 30. And then the single went up and went top 10. And then the album came back up to top 15 and then the other two albums we had on the charts were all we had like two albums in the top 20 three albums on the on the top 100 and and a top 10 single so that was like the height of everything right then you know and then the next album came out near the beginning and that hit the charts as well and one of them fell off we still had three albums on the charts and a top 15 single again but the hanging on was still somewhere like in the top 100 and then we went on Ed Sullivan again. And then we did Shotgun. Yeah. At the end of Shotgun, if you listen to that, you'll hear the end of Rock and Roll by Zeppelin. Same, pretty much, I wouldn't say no for no, but the whole the same idea, the same concept. So when, when I tell people that, they say, wow, it is the same. It is, you know, I said, yeah, except this was four years before Rock and Roll ever came out. So. Yeah, I went back and listened to it, and uh, you're right. It's it's yeah. the same thing. So yeah. It's the same same idea, you know. Right. Can we, can we but, talk? But, you know, hey, but as Joe Morello said, we, none of us has it all. We all take from each other. That's right. My, all those, rolling, what we used to call Falling Rocks, which John Bonham did as well. We all, it came from Max Roach. Right. Yeah. You know? And thank except, God. Except with double bass drum. Sure. All right. Thank God you guys came before us and they came before you because we need some inspiration, right? 
Right. Can we talk about you and John Bonham and Led Zeppelin? Is it fair to say that you mentored a young John Bonham? Well, while he was on the road, and from what I understood from him, uh, I was like one of his idols. Not a total idol. Gene Cooper was another idol. The R&B guys was like, I was one of his rock idols, you know, probably along with Ginger Baker and, uh, and Mitch. But he liked my style better because my style was power style. You know, I was hitting hard. Mitch didn't hit hard, neither did Ginger. Keith didn't really hit, Keith Moon didn't hit hard either. But when I came out, I was really hitting hard. And when I, when I, when I came out with the big drums, the oversized drums, the 26 bass drums and the marching tenor drum was my small tom, 18 by 16 by 18 floor tom and a 22 bass drum on its side. And then the gong, you know, at some point I had chimes. I had all kinds of orchestral stuff. When he saw that set, you know, was he, they opened up for us. We got the album first. And when I heard good times, bad times, I said, man, this guy is badass. I said, what a foot on him. I love this guy, you know. And then I heard some similarities in his playing to my playing, like the triplet, which was one of my trademarks back then, you know. And then those things were one of my trademarks. I heard some similarity. So when I met him, he told me that I was one of his idols and that he listened to all the Vanilla Fudge records. And, and that I said, man, I love that triplet on the bass drum. And he said... He said, well, I got that from you. And I said, I don't do that. He said, yeah, you do. I said, I don't do that. And I'm arguing with him. And he pointed out on one of my records, I think it was on the Renaissance record, where I went something like, bop, doodle, bop, doodle, bop, doodle, bop, doodle, bop, doodle, bop, like that. And he took that and went, diddle, 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 you know, with the 16th note triplet with the rest on the first one. And and he said, so I got it from you. And I said, wow, I didn't even know I did that. Because in those days, we used to play record, go to records with the band, and we play whatever comes out, you know? And then, then it becomes written in stone, right. you know? So in some but, ways, it could be the apiece triplets as well as the bottom triplets. Well, I mean, it was the half triplet my, was mine, yeah. you know? But the full-on triplet was definitely his. Yeah. But again, it's the same thing like, like Joe Morello said. He took what I did and did it his way. Right. You know, so I, I loved him. And, uh, yeah. and, he, and then we saw my drum set. He said, oh, man, I, want, I would love to get a drum set like that. You think you could call Ludwig and talk to them? I said, yeah, I can definitely talk to them. So I called Ludwig because I was one of their bigger and talk. It was me, Ginger, uh, uh, Mitch, and, and Dino. Mm. That was like the four yeah. big ones. And Dino was sort of not in the same... Uh, uh, realm as us because we were we were more in the album oriented music. Yeah. We were a lot more playing, a lot more jamming, and you know, Medina was great in what he did, but it, they turned into a top forty band, so it, it it had a different outlook, a different image, you know. So, so I was an important endorser for Ludwig at the time, and I called him. I said, "Look, I got this band that's open enough for us. I called Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page's band from the Yardbirds." We got a new drummer named John Bonham. I think they're going to be big. And he wants a drum set like my Big Maple kit. What do you think? Can we do that? They said, can you send us the album? So we sent them the album. And on the album, in my word, they 
gave him a duplicate set of my kit, you know. But that conversation is like the, the, the uh, it's ridiculous. The understatement of five decades, I think they're going to be big. You, know? you were right, though, right? I was right. Yeah. And we knew it. We right. knew it. And when we played with them, we knew it, too. Yeah. Because they were the first band to blow us off. We, were the, we used to blow everybody right. off. We blew the Who off. We blew the Hendrix off. We blew off the cream. We blew off all the big groups at the time, you know. And a lot of groups we were playing equal bill with, we weren't even opening, but we blew them off anyway. Yeah. You, know, it was, you know, Fudge, it was nobody like us. And it was very dynamic, and we moved around on stage, and everyone else did still, you know. And I mean, I used to walk around with Robert Plant and, and John Bonham in Hollywood. I remember telling Robert he should move around more. <laughs> he took <laughs> your advice. It. Now, it's so funny, you know, it's so funny. You know, but we became all good friends. You know, yeah. we and when uh, John Bob, when John died, I was playing with Rod at the time, and there was big rumors going around that I was going to be the one to you know, fill it in. Yeah. Me or Cozy Powell. Yeah. You know, but Cozy used to listen to me with John, yeah. and 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 when I tell this story, you know, I'm just telling reality and the truth. I'm not telling it like a, I'm egoed out that you know. John Bonham listened to me. I'm just telling the truth, yeah. you know. And uh, years ago, when I used to tell the truth like that, people would, you know, say that I'm an egomaniac and, you know, I'm saying I taught him everything, you know. I never said that, right. you know. Right. I mean, I never said that ever. Sure. And, uh, but then a book came out called The Thunder of Drums mm -hmm. that, that Chris Welch wrote. Yes. And, and, and Chris interviewed John. You know, many, many times and found out that he used to listen to my music. And after that first tour, he came back raving about how excited he was that he was touring with Vanilla Fudge and watching me every night. And him and Cozy Powell raving to each other about it, yeah. you know, talking to each other about it. And, you know, because they were both from Birmingham yes. and uh, they sort of grew up in the same like I grew up with Dino Dinelli. Those two grew up around the same right. scene. So. When that book came out, it sort of set the record straight so that when I talked about it, and then I still didn't talk about it until like Rhythm Magazine and, and Modern Drummer would say, the man that influenced John Bonham, Carmine Peace. And now I'm not saying it. Right. So it makes it okay. That's right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And obviously, you know, that, that ship has sailed. I don't think the, the Zeppelin is going to fly again. But would you no. have taken that gig if you got offered it? Oh, oh definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Because, you know, at the time when that that happened, you know, a lot of the stuff that Bonzo played was played, number one, on the big drums that, that I, he got, you know, from me. And the gong and everything, you know, I had the gong and he got the gong. And he, he was the first one to get the, the new pasty gong stand, the big ones behind him. And I, I think I was the second one, you know, and I got a bigger gong then, yeah, yeah. you know. Can I can I also ask when was the last time you saw John and what was that interaction like? It's hard to say. Probably nineteen seventy nine. Okay. You know, probably maybe a year before he died. They were they were exiled to L.A. for a while. Yeah. You know, so I used to see him quite a bit out here. Yeah. You know, and uh, but he was always a good guy to me. You know, even when he was drunk, when he was badass as hell, when he was drunk. Always treated me with respect. I always loved him for it, and he was always a good guy. You know, I, I never had any any problems with him ever. You know, uh, we never argued. We never had a fight. You know, 
and uh, used to come watch me play. And I, you know, he he came to a drum clinic I did in uh, in New Jersey one time at Sam Ash. Yeah. He showed up, and uh, wow, and he had a beer in his hand, and he left a bottle there. They still have the bottle. Is that right? Yeah, it's the bottle that John Bonham drank from. <laughs> At the Carmine Peace Drum Clinic, you know, it's, it's classic stuff. I can't imagine showing up to a drum clinic and having Carmine Peace and John Bonham there. That's that's incredible. Yeah, I know. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, that is amazing. Being a classic rock geek myself, one of the immediate stories that I've heard about for nearly 30 years, I know it's longer than that, but I went straight to the Zeppelin Seattle Pop Festival uh, Mud, Shark, <laughs> Mud Shark story, of course, yeah. right? So um, I, I'm not going to give any spoilers because if you want to read the book, get it, stick it. It's it's fantastic book. The only question that I had that I came away from it with is, and and I will tell you, it was way more than I'd ever heard the legendary story to be. Uh, people will make their own. Uh, well, that's that's why we put it in there because all the other stories didn't really have the story. Yeah, you know, and. It, you know, I mean, when you take when you read a story like that, you got to remember it's a whole different era. Right. Everybody looked at sex differently. Every uh, every woman that was involved in all these crazy stories did it on their own accord. They wanted to do it. They were never forced to do it. And today, it's different. You got to understand another thing. Back in those days, like '68, '69. The birth control pill had just come out, not not much, you know, further before that, you know, and basically, women were just getting their sexual their sexuality explored for the first time in history. So they were like, like guys, right? Sexual you know, revolution, the yeah, swinging sixties, the seventies. It was you know, love and peace, and there was no AIDS. There was no diseases. You know, if you got the, the only disease you get, you can get rid of it with a penicillin shot. It was free love everywhere. It was, it was a whole different attitude and lifestyle. So that thing that happened was really crazy. I mean, it it actually grossed me out too at the end, and it was in my room, and I had to leave my room. You know, but. But it did happen, and it became a legendary story that was on VH1, it was on MTV, it was on you know, TV shows, it was on, you know, the shocking moments of rock and roll, and, you know, and I, I've always got asked about it, and, and when, I, when we wrote it, I told my writer, you know, I said, what do you think? I mean, we actually toned it down a little bit. Did you? Yeah, wow. Yeah, because it was, <laughs> it was so outrageous yeah. that yeah. I, I had to tone it down a bit because I, I couldn't even read it. Yeah. My girlfriend won't even read that, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, so definitely. Uh, but, but what we tried to do with the book is give you a real look at what it was like being a rock star yeah. when rock stars were being born. Right, right. You know, at the beginning of it all. That's right. And, and groupies were being born. They had movies about groupies. Right. You know, we knew all these groupies. We Some of them we started off as being a groupie, right. you know. But it was a whole different scene a whole different everything yeah definitely wild rock and roll times my yeah. quest my only question that i won't have any spoilers because people have heard this is uh was the mud shark where i've always heard it was a red snapper but was the mud shark still alive at this point throughout the whole thing 
Probably not. Probably not. Okay. Got it. I, I might have been. I might have been. I mean, let's put it this way. The room next to where we were was our road crew, John Bonham, his wife, Richard Cole, fishing out the window. And they had the bathtub full of fish. Right. Okay. You so, could fish right out the dock, right? Right out the, right, right out the window. Right out the window. Right out the dock. Yeah. The, the, the hotel was built on the dock. Wow. So you open your window... There was the water, yeah. and they sell and they give you fishing poles. They rent yeah. to to fish out. So their bathtub was filled with a few different fish, and the, so it came right from the bathtub Amazing. to the next room. So you know, after I, how long does it take a fish to die? Right. You know, right. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. One one last Bonham question, and then I want to move on. Is you know you talked about it's such a different time back then to now. And back then, certainly alcohol and drugs were much more, people were experimenting much more excess. There were no treatment options, no, you know, none of that yeah. stuff. Um, were there ever thoughts, whether it was John Bonham or somebody else, that, hey, there's got to be a line here. It's cool to party and have fun. But where was the line, if there was ever, that anyone would ever say, hey, buddy, I'm concerned about you. Maybe chill out well, tonight. I mean, there's, there's been a line. I, I, I never had that line with John Bonham, but I had that line with Tommy Boland. Yeah. Last time I saw Tommy Boland was in a rehearsal. Mark Stein was playing with him. I went down, and Tommy was so out of it, so out of it, that you know, we, we said to him, I said, dude, you got to stop doing this stuff. You're going to kill yourself. Yeah. You know, and on that tour, he killed himself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the only other one was John's son, Jason. Jason was following the footsteps of his dad, drinking a lot, doing all the drugs. And, and I saw him at an AM show one time and I laced into him because I, I, I knew him when he was a baby. You know, I, you know, I knew it was John's wife. I knew you know, Jason when he was young. Matter of fact, John Bonham gave him my realistic rock book to his son, you know, when he was a kid. But, you know, and when I saw him, I said, I said, dude, you know, you got to stop doing this. Your father killed himself by doing this. You want to do the same thing? You know, I know you want to follow in his footsteps. But you don't want to follow those ones. You know, something along those lines, you know, I said, he wouldn't be happy seeing you like this. You know, something along those lines. I was talking to him at the NAMM show. And then, you know, I don't know how long after that it was, but I'm I'm sure it was maybe me and other people telling him and made him just draw the line and go and go a step on the other side. Right. Yeah. But now he's straight. He doesn't he doesn't do anything. Yeah. Clearly made a difference because he he's yeah. talks about not doing any of that stuff today. That's great. Exactly. It's awesome. Can we talk about, you know, going back to Seattle for a second, the story that gets actually forgotten in that legendary story, as you talk about in your book, was the reason you were there in the first place, the Seattle Pop Festival with incredible right. artists. They don't, <laughs> they don't make festivals yeah. like this anymore, Carmine. It was yeah. you, the Vanilla Fudge, Zeppelin, The Doors, Santana, Alice Cooper, Ike and Tina Turner, uh, 50,000 people. What was that? Yeah. Was Was Hendrix there, too? I, I think, I'm not sure if he was there. Okay. He usually was at all the festivals yeah. that yeah. we did, and he might have been there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, when we played, you know, we, Led Zeppelin guys were hanging around, and they played, we hung around. You know, it's just the way it was at the festival. But, you know, we didn't like 
that year was the year they did um, Woodstock. Yeah. And we were asked to do Woodstock by our agent. And we didn't want to do it because we had just done like two or three festivals that, that summer. And it was like, it was so hard to get in and out of. You know, you have to take a helicopter, a big old helicopter in. And then sometimes you'd have to wait two or three hours for the helicopter to leave if you want to leave. And you couldn't leave because there was too much traffic. And you couldn't go in any other way. So it was a big hassle. Sure. You know, so that's why sometimes you go and you just stay there all day and watch everybody. Right. You know, right. and then when we were playing, uh, Jim Morrison was on the right side where Mark Stein was. And he was almost right behind Mark Stein watching, you know. And, you know, but it's, it's so funny because these people to us were just other musicians, other people in other bands. And then, then they died and they become these untouchable icons that people look at them that, like they were never human beings, you know, but, you know, Morrison and, and John Bonham and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Chaplin. They were all real people all real that we people. used to know and we used to tour with and we used to hang out with and have a laugh and have a drink and, yeah. you know. Yeah. Can you can you share some of those real people experiences that you may have had with Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix? Well, uh, Jim Morrison wasn't too much like Mark Stein has more stories about Jim, but like Janis Joplin, we played a, a festival that had Miami Pop Festival and we were the headliners and under us was Janis Joplin. And Johnny Winter. And and when we were on, they came up, both of them came up to play, play a blues with us. Mm-hmm. Right? And Janice was singing. And, and when the guitar solo came, she came around to me. And she goes, hey, drummer boy. And she put her arm around me and said, have a slick of this. And she shoved this Southern Comfort in my face and then tipped the bottle up. Yeah. You know, so there was no way I could avoid it. You know? And you still had to and, play the drums. And I was still playing. I, I took a big chunk of that. Yeah. A slug at that, and like I went like, whoa, right. you know, I almost like stopped playing, you know, right. and yeah, you know, and then we finished the song, we go all back to the hotel, and we'd be in the bar, and we'd be drinking, and you know, it's just normal, normal stuff, you know. You, you know, you talked about especially like a real person, your affinity for Jimmy James, Jimi Hendrix, and right. you had a long connection with him can you talk about him and your relationship your experiences with him well he was he was he was always a very timid soft you know very soft-spoken guy because when he got on stage he let it all out you know and the first one was when we were up in that uh prostitute's apartment talking next time i met him we were in the london rainbow uh london speakeasy and, uh, you know, he was there. And I knew it was Jimmy, James, Jimmy Hendrix was Jimmy James because I saw pictures of him playing with his teeth, which he always did. And uh, when I went into the uh, restaurant area, I said, Jimmy, it's Carmine from Thursday's Children. We played back in New York many times. And he said, oh, yeah. I said, that's, that's and I, now I realize you're Jimmy Hendrix. I saw pictures of you, and you were Jimmy James at the time. He said, yeah. He said, what are you doing? I said, I play in Vanilla Fudge. And he said, oh, I love the fudge, you know? Very cool. And, uh, yeah, and, and then we sort of became friends, and we did lots of gigs together with the fudge. We did lots of gigs together with Cactus. At the Isle of Wight, he was, uh, that was the last gig he played. We played as well, and we, we, we were there. To, uh, I, I don't remember if it was the day he played. Or I think it was the day he played that we played, 
or maybe we played and he didn't, but he was hanging around. Like I said, you go to there, but what else are you going to do? Right. You like to hear the music, you know, and see everybody play. Yeah. And uh, it's like when you go on a cruise now, you go on a cruise and everybody's playing, you go see everybody play, right. you know? That's right. Otherwise, what are you going to do? Sit in the sun, you know? Right. So, so we, uh, Jim McCarty was a really good friend of Jimi Hendrix because uh, he was in the Buddy Miles Express and Jimi Hendrix produced that band. And uh, so you got to know Jimmy really well. As a matter of fact, Jimmy Hendrix gave Jim McCarty a set of lyrics, handwritten by Jimmy, that McCarty sold years later for many, many thousands of dollars, you know, to a collector. And and the night of, you know, they were jamming in the dressing room, you know, on acoustic guitars, Jimmy and two Jimmys. And we were hanging out backstage, and it was like maybe four days later he was dead. Wow. That was the last time you saw him then? That was the last time we saw him. Yeah. How would you describe his mood? Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Normal. Having fun playing guitar. Yeah. Doing drugs, drinking, you know, some wine. You know, I don't know. Yeah, those festivals, you don't know what you take. You take a slick of wine and it has acid in it. You know, they have punch, you have LSD and it has mescaline in it or something. You know, that's happened many times for me, you know. Yeah. And and unknowingly, unknowingly, yeah. Didn't like you know. in Puerto Rico, when we were playing with Cactus, there was a Rod in the Faces, ELP, all the big groups of the day, and you know we we did some. We went to the festival the night before, as I just said. Yeah. We hung out, took some slugs of the punch, had mescaline in it. Yikes. Wow. You know, we were up all night. We had to go on like in mid afternoon. I was still I was still high. Sure. Still didn't sleep, and I was like, you know, wow. out of it. I only I had suicide thoughts that night. Really, uh, I think I, I think I read it in the book. It's in the book. You know, I was out on the balcony. Mm. Uh, me and the lead singer used to room together, and we had these two girls that were twins. And you know, so after we were sort of done having our sexual party, we, I went out on the balcony myself, and I, I might have had a brandy and coke, which uh, I used to drink in those days. Not a lot, but I have one drink maybe. And I'm thinking, I'm saying, oh, looking, I'm feeling the. Dude, from the mescaline, I'm feeling my blood going through my veins, and I'm thinking, all I got to do is get up on the chair and just jump off that balcony, get smashed on the rocks, and it's over. Wow. Amazing. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to go inside. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's time to get inside. Thankfully, that's so I went. Happen. So I went inside. Yeah. But, you know, it's like w really weird thoughts. And then the next day we played, you know, and they recorded it live, and it came out on an album. But it kicked ass. Incredible. Yeah, and, and obviously such a tragic loss with, with Jimi Hendrix. The other story that you talked about in your book that I was really blown away by, you were part of a group that he invited people to listen to his the brand new, right. at the time, Electric Ladyland album. Right. Talk about yeah. hearing uh, All Along the Watchtower for the first time, the other songs from that album. What was that like? Well, I mean, in those days, it wasn't like one song. Yeah. You just put the record on. Right. Yeah. And we listened to the whole thing. And, and he sat in the corner, like very timid and, you know, was grooving. But, you know, you could tell he was looking for the reactions, yeah. you know, but everybody loved it, you know. And he did it more than once. As I did it one time and, and uh, in Seattle. And Mark Stein remembers doing it somewhere else with him. Okay. You know, so, okay. you know, I guess it's, your, you know, it's like any musician, you know, in the, in, in the day you're proud of. Sure. Your new product. You want to. You want other people to hear it to see what their reaction is. You know. Yeah. 
exactly. Yeah, I wish we would have done that with Vanilla Fudge's second album, right. and we would never would have released it. <laughs> no, is that one you wish you could take back? Oh, it's a horrible. It was, the beat goes down. It was a concept album, no music on it. Mm. You, know, you, you go on YouTube and listen to some of it, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It killed our career. It really killed our career. That's why all the other bands, Hendrix and Z and and Cream and all the other bands got bigger than we were because we, instead of doing like we did on the first album, yeah. same thing, second album, which would have been the same thing, but would have been a hit. Right. It's like, you know, you know, McDonald's saying, oh, I got a hit hamburger and now I'm going to make a tuna sandwich. Right. You know, right. they stayed with the hamburgers. Yeah, so now, we didn't. We stayed with the formula that our producer Shadow Morton and Ahmed Erdogan thought was a great idea for this concept record, which had been a great idea for like the eighth record, right. not your second record. Right. You want to get the band big first sure. and established. Sure. Big yeah. mistake. Yeah. And so was that part of the disillusionment then with for you with Vanilla Fudge and then eventually? Well, it started the it started it okay. because we had to rush in and do another record to save our ass. Got it. We rushed in and did another record, the only cover we did, and then we we wrote songs because everybody's going, ah, these guys suck. They they only they don't write their own songs. But if you listen to our arrangements, our arrangements have been used in movies without the song, you know, because of the music. So we wrote great music, you know, that went hooked on to other songs that we changed anyway, and we even changed chord structures on the music of of the songs that we played. But we so we did an album like that, and it did okay. It went up to I think top fifteen, but we didn't get a hit single off it, you know. Yeah. Where we could have had a hit single if we had redone some of the stuff like we did before, sure. you know. But then we had a rush, and then we did the next album. That was a rush, and that did well too, but none of them went gold or platinum except the first one, you know. So that's how we knew that we. So by the time we did the fourth album, then music was changing. Led Zeppelin came out. The organ was going away. All the guitar stuff was coming in. So we, And then we got word from John Bonham, told me that Jeff Beck wanted to play with me and Tim, and we were going to use Rod Stewart as a singer. Yeah. So we said, wow. And those were the days of supergroups. Right. Right. Blind Faith came out, and, and uh, West Bruce and Lang. Sure. You know, so we were going to do this group. It was going to be called Cactus. But then Jeff Beck got in a car wreck, and Rod didn't want to work with Jeff anymore anyway because uh, some financial problems there. And uh, so we ended up doing Cactus with uh, McCarty and Rusty Day, which did fairly well around the world too. Yes. How would you sum up your time, uh, a word, a sentence, a feeling that comes up around Cactus for you? Uh, a kick-ass a kick band that really influenced a lot of bands. Mm. Like uh, ACDC, Van Halen, King's X, uh, Ronnie James Dio, you know, just to name a few that I know of, Whitesnake. Oh, you know? Yeah, so another huge influence. Yeah. And you also did get a chance to talk uh, to play with Jeff Beck. Can we talk about the ups and downs of that experience? Well, the ups are great playing and some fun times. Jeff was a, a very different kind of person. He was a little introverted, a little insecure at the times, you know. Uh, but when we're up, it was up. When it's down, it was down. Like we, we did the second album twice and still never came out, mm. you know. And uh, and then the band broke up. Yeah. Yeah. If I remember. But, it left a, but it left a mark. 
No question it did, right? So just curious, I mean, Jeff Beck is without question, no doubt, one of the best guitarists that's ever lived on the planet, uh, virtuoso guitarist. Well, rock, rock guitarist. Rock guitarist, no question. Yes, right, understood, yeah. understood. I mean, yeah. you know, he himself says he's not a jazz rock, right. a jazz player, right. like McLaughlin, you know, okay. those guys. Yeah. But he is a unique, amazing rock guitarist. Of the three that came out of the Yardbirds, for me, he's the best. Yeah. Yeah. Because he, he's, he can play anything. Right. And, and he plays with humor and he plays with uh, confidence. Yeah. And he doesn't use a pick anymore. Right. It's just awesome. Right. And, you know, and I helped, you know, I was involved in the, the switchover from BBA to Blow by Blow. There's a song on our BBA uh, if, uh, that we used to do on the second album called Jizzwiz that was on the Beckology album. It's like a bridge between the two. It you know, started off in 13-8, then it went to 6-8 and 3-4. And it was all jamming. You know, it was instrumental. And, you know, after BBA broke up, I spent time in London recording and, and arranging and writing songs with Jeff, which was going to become Blow by Blow. You know, again, people may say, oh, your ego went out. You know, but you know, I'm just telling the truth. Yeah. You know, and I used to listen in the car with Jeff Ma Vishnu and Billy Cobham, and he loved it. But I turned him on to that stuff. But he didn't hear it yet. You know, and we used to drive together in the car, and Tim and we'd drive together with the tour manager. When we, in Europe, we'd, we'd take cars. You know, we'd drive two rental cars. And the road crew would have a, a truck, you know. And, and Jeff liked to drive, and I liked to drive, and we'd listen to music. And I would listen to Billy Cobham and Ma Vishnu and, and Chick Corea and all that stuff. Because I love that stuff, you know, and I, I, it influenced me, so it influenced him. And so we were writing a record, and I played on five or six, seven tracks mm. with George Martin. Mm. But then we couldn't work out a deal. Yeah. So my managers told me I should not play Sideman to Jeff Beck and not play on the album. I never even got paid a dime for it. I was over there for three months. Yikes. You know, yeah. and uh, I co-wrote songs that I didn't get the credit on either. And then that album comes out and sells two million and starts a whole new career for Jeff. You know? yeah. yeah, that's certainly one of the upset, one of the downs that you talked about in the ups and oh, downs totally. of your career, right? Yeah. With all due respect, with Jeff, you called him enigmatic in your book. What do you think that was all about? Some of those ups and downs was that just the youth and that's just the way Jeff was? Yeah. You know, he, he was. I was always the middle guy between Jeff and Tim. You know, they were always, you know, at odds of some of, with something, you know. And Jeff was a nice guy, basically, you know. I got along with him great. But I find a lot of English guitar players have the same traits, you know. Which are? Which are like, you know, the insecure, but being insecure and, and egotistical at the same time, okay. you know. Yeah. And that, you know, won't do this unless it's absolutely perfect or, you know, and then not wanting to do this or, or, or wanting to do that all of a sudden out of the blue, you know, but, you know, I found that with a bunch of English guy, guitar players I work with and, and, but Jeff was unique. He was one of the, one of the greats, always been one of the greats. And he'd been lucky because there were time spans where he wouldn't release an album for seven years. Most other artists, would die in those seven years, but his audience stayed with him. 
even today. Yep. And today, he's, you know, there was a point in time, like in the 90s, I talked to Jeff, and I, we, you know, I, I would, every time he come from uh, L.A. to New York, I'd hang out with him, you know. But I wouldn't, he wouldn't call me. I'd always call him because he hates the phone, okay. you know. Yeah. He's one of those guys that don't like the phone, yeah. you know. But he loved cars. I love cars. So we got along you know, great, you know. And, and uh, you know, I was very disappointed when that album, I had to go off that album. Sure. I was really disappointed when it sold $2 million. I was right. pissed off. Right. Sure. You know, because yeah. it started a whole new career that I could have been involved in, right. you know, but I get what they meant. You know, manager and lawyer said, you know, you equal bill with Jeff and now you're going to be a side man. It's not good for my career, which really didn't help make a difference to me because after that, I didn't do anything till I did the Rod Stewart group, which I wasn't Rod Stewart and Carmine a piece anyway. Yeah, but I did have my name on the drums all the time. That's right. <laughs> well, that was that was another upswing of your career, though, landing the big, gig big time. with Rod Stewart. And how long had you been writing songs before you, you wrote with Rod? Well, I wrote songs all through my career. The first one I wrote was 68 with, with uh, Vanilla Fudge. Okay. Uh, on, on the, on the uh, Renaissance album, I wrote two songs. Well, well, one and a half. Mark Stein wrote one half with me. Uh, on the near the beginning album, I, I wrote same thing. I, uh, I co-wrote with Mark uh, on that album, and then with Cactus, we co-wrote all the songs together. With and that was like three or four albums, and then uh, KGB that was uh, with BBA. I co-wrote songs, and I wrote a, I wrote one one of the songs all myself, but I gave them credit to try and keep the band together. And uh, but I co-wrote a bunch of the songs on that, and then you know, after that I, with Rod, we co-wrote a few songs as, as a band, and then Rod asked us all to go home and come back with a song that would in the tempo of "Missing You" by the Rolling Stones, mm -hmm. yeah. and he wanted a song like that, and and I won. Right, I, I wrote it on the keyboard. I went to my buddy Dwayne's house. He had a little studio with a keyboard and an A-track, and we made it. he made it sound good. So I gave him a piece of my end of the song because he made it sound good. Okay. And then we wrote it, and it became Rod's biggest selling song ever. Okay. And this is Do You Think I'm Sexy? Do You Think I'm Sexy? This, this is probably no deeper meaning, but what was the story or inspiration of this song? Well, that's Rod. Rod wrote lyrics. I never write lyrics. Okay. I wrote music. You wrote the music. So, Got it. Yeah, you would have to ask him. Got it. But, okay. no, it's, it's just a story. He, he's, he was a great storyteller. Right. It's a story about a guy goes to a club and sees a chick, and you know, and and they start talking, and you know, do you think I'm sexy? It's like you know, what, what was on their mind? Right. Exactly. You know, is it is it accurate the story that I read? If I wrote, read it correctly, when you wrote this, it was more of a harder rock song. Do you think originally? Originally, it was three guitars, bass, drums, and a keyboard. Yeah. which is pretty rock. Yeah. But then Tom Dowd, the producer, put orchestra on it, and yeah. put chicks singing high harmonies, yeah. and had David Foster on it, and he had the David, uh, um, I forgot who the, the sax player was. Um, anyway, a named sax player played the solo, yeah. and before you know it, we had two reels of, of 48 tracks of crap on it, so by the time you you get all that down to a two track and on a vinyl, 
something's got to suffer. So the big sound we had suffered, yeah. and it came more like a a disco-ish song, disco rock song. But, you know, it influenced Kiss to write their hit disco song and, right. and a few other ones. But I took the original rock arrangement at the time I was producing a Japanese singer. And I took the original rock arrangement we did and I made another song out of it with her called jo I Just Fell in Love Again. And it's a lot heavier and a lot more rock. Very cool. Yeah. Well, have to check that out. Excellent. Yeah. How did you feel about the song from when you wrote it to the way it turned out? I mean, come on. It was number one in 10 countries. How are you going to feel about it? Right. Yeah. I was so happy and proud. I can hold it. My God, I wrote a number one song. Sure. You know, and then we did Young Turks. Me and Dwayne did that together. And with the new style with the Oberheim drum machine and me playing hi-hat and cymbals. And we that whole sound was on Young Turks and, and Tonight I'm Yours. Which was the sound that came out of Dwayne's studio, you know, and uh, it was awesome, you know. Now, now that was a number four single. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. One of the Facebook questions that I got because I put it on my page, Carmine, on musicians on the record that we were going to talk and interview. And one of the questions that I got was from your days playing with Rod, touring with him, what what story or stories immediately come to mind about that? Well, everything was an event. Mm -hmm. Anytime we did a gig, it was an event yeah. and it was sold out yeah. and they wouldn't even book the gig unless they knew it would sell out. And if it didn't sell out, they would do something like have the roadies wreck a hotel room, get arrested. So there's press on TV yeah. and it would sell out, right. you know? And he told me, if you, when I was doing drum clinics and so make an event out of them, don't just do a drum clinic, make it an event bigger than life. And I did, you know, and, and, and I learned a lot about songwriting, a lot about image, you know, that would you say that was the most successful time of your career? With totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It was the most successful time in his career too. Because right? <laughs> it was, yeah. uh, you know, we knew every time he'd release an album, he'd see us 5 million records. Right. You know, and Sexy sold, that album sold 10 million copies around the world. You know, and the single did 2 million here alone. Yeah. You know, it was the biggest thing he ever did. Right. Yeah, no, no question. A great part of his career as well. So it made me wonder, of like, even because he wrote the foreword to your book, Stick It. Yes. And he even said, I have no idea why I let Carmine go. So, so what happened with all of that? You guys were having major... Drugs. 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 Because when, at one point, 80, 1980, he got rid of the whole Rod Stewart group hmm. for some reason. I don't know why, okay. but he kept me. Okay. And he said, you know, well, what should you do? I had Danny Johnson and Jay Davis playing with me on my solo album, which came out on Rod's label. Okay. okay? He had his own label, and his manager signed me, and they gave me the budget. And I was recording, and... I played some of the tracks to Rod. He loved it. And he said, who's the bass player and guitar player? I told him, he said, well, let's get him. Let's see, if, you know, let's get him with us. So we got them two. And then, then we thought it might be good to keep one of the guitar players that that was in the band because they knew all the chord changes, all the keys. You know, so we got Jim Cregan back, okay. you know. And then eventually we got Kevin Savagar back. You know, but then we needed another guy, and we got this guy, Robin Lamazier, you know. So so everybody was English except me, Danny, and Jay, right? 
And then that album, the Young Turks album, uh, I was getting into more production. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, uh, well, we're going to, said, Rod said, I'm going to produce it, but you and Jim can co-produce it. I said, great. So for me being a co-producer, I didn't mind. On all of Rod's album, they always brought like a, like a, another drummer in to do a couple of ballads or something, you know. But the, the songs that didn't really, were never released as a single and, you know, wasn't really part of the band. It was just a lighter touch. And I was fine with that, you know, it's his band, you know. And a lot of guys like that didn't, never even use their band to record. And we were lucky, we were treated like a band, you know. And so we, he wanted to bring uh, some like Tony Brock in to play a couple of tracks. I said, okay. So I sat in the studio like the producer. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, let's do another one. That wasn't good. It, it just didn't have a good feel, you know. Yeah. Blah, blah. So Tony played on some of the tracks. And I played on some of the tracks. And then, you know, when Tony was around and there was the English ones out, outweighed the Americans. And they were always in the pub drinking and doing coke. And and Jim McCaw, Jim Jim was always in Rod's ear about me because he was always jealous of me because after Rod's name I was the biggest name, you know. And I did all the press on the road that Rod didn't want to do, and the publicist let told me you do it all. I said fine, and I got a lot of press, and I you know, I got my solo spot, and you know I was being calm out of peace, right. you know you, you what I do, that. yeah, you, you know. That. So he was jealous of it, and he on the coke, talking into Rod's ear. So first thing, I, Rod said, you know what? Uh, I'm blowing out your co-production credit. I'm giving it to Jim. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, what? You know, and I, I felt something was happening. And then somewhere along the line, and when I was on the road with Rod, before we, we started recording that album, you know, the rumors were going that I was going to join Led Zeppelin, and he heard about it. And he said, are you planning to join? I said, no. I said, it's just a rumor. He goes, that's good because there's a rumor that I'm, I'm going to retire after this tour. We said, let's keep the rumor going. Let's sell more tickets. I said, okay. So I kept it going. He kept it going, you know. Yeah. And so then Billy Gaffer's manager calls my manager and says, uh, Rod, Rod wants to uh, fire Carmine or Rod's firing Carmine or whatever, releasing Carmine or whatever the, the and he goes, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, well, Rod said that Carmine's going to join Led Zeppelin, so he doesn't want to, you know, anybody that's going to leave him. Mm. You know, and, and my manager said, well, what are you talking about? He's not joining Led Zeppelin. But they just want to, you know, the click, the English click, yeah. the drinking, so they brought Tony Brock in. So I got screwed out of the tour. But on the album cover, it's funny, because it, the album cover, we all had these uh, – English uh, sailor suits on, like sailor jack, and I was sitting on the on. The, there was this four guys up there, and me and Rod down here. Rod's got his arm around me, you know, like that, and we're both smiling. So when after the first million sales, they took my, my head and face off, and they put Tony Brock's face on my body. Oh, no, <laughs> if you look at that and you see the one with Tony Brock, you can see that's on my body. That's ridiculous. You know, and then Rod was all, you know. Yeah. I, and then I released my Al solo album right after that on his label. And he's out there saying, oh, you can't trust a drummer that has a name on the drums. I go, I said, what the hell does that mean? You know? Right. And, and we, were, we, had, we were at odds for a minute for about a year. 
but, but I was on his label, sure. you know? Sure, right. And, uh, and then that calmed down, and, you know, and then uh, I don't remember how it calmed down. Uh, but then the, even the crazy one was when Jeff Beck ended up in the same hotel as us in Australia, you know? Yeah. And they were at yeah. total enemies, and I got them together. So playing peacemaker on that one, right? I was total peacemaker on that one. And then, and then I, I, we were initial, me and Dwayne were initial in doing people get ready. Because yeah. Jeff came to my house and stood with me for two weeks. Yeah. We hung out. We partied. We went to the Rainbow every night. Just hung out. Didn't play a note of music. Just, just friends, you know. He's driving in my Pantera and driving in my sports cars. And, you know, we're hanging around Hollywood with all the chicks and having a great time. I was divorced at the time. I had my big house. And uh, then he said, hey, where can we do some music? So I said, let's go to Dwayne's house. Went to Dwayne. He still has a studio. And we started playing these chords. And it ended up, you know, they're licking. People get ready. Do, 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 do. That was Dwayne's lick. Wow. It wasn't Jeff's lick. It was Dwayne. It's amazing. You know? And we arranged to put it all together. And then I said, you know what? It sounds like people get ready. And I started singing because I sang that with the fudge. And Jeff says, yeah, you're right. So Jeff said, what do you think about, because now Jeff had met Rod in Australia, and they were sort of friends again. And he said, maybe we can get Rod to sing on it. He said, yeah, that's a good idea. So we called Rod's house, and we went to Dan Tanner's and met Rod. We had a cassette. We played him the cassette. Rod said, yeah, a week later, we're all in the studio. And Jeff was staying in my house. Right. It's incredible. So you guys yeah. all made peace at some point. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. yeah, it was all peace. It was great. Yeah. But then when it came out, me and Dwayne didn't even get a mention. Oh, Again. Again. So every, time I, every time I seem to work with Jeff, I get screwed. But, Thanks. you know, Would but, you we work? Stayed, but we stayed friends. Yeah. You know? That's what I got in your book, too, is even through the ups and downs, you guys have stayed friends. Do you see him ever? Do you talk with him at all? No, I mean, I talked to him a couple of months ago when we were doing working on this live record we're talking about. And, uh, but he's on tour now, and I, I tried to, uh, you know, he was playing New York when I was leaving to go play with the Rascals. So, you know, the, the tour manager said, yeah, Jeff wants you to come see him. And I said, no, I'm going to be out of town. I said, well, what about, let's, let's do a phone call, you know. Mm-hmm. I know he hates the phone you know, so we never got the phone call, you know. So I might call him at home, you know, when I know he gets home. I'll give him a week to relax, and I'll call him and, sure. you know, and just say hello. Sure. How do you approach drumming differently today, if any? I know different. Yeah, just hitting it as hard as ever. <laughs> I still play the same. I mean, I, I play, uh, let's put it this way, uh, I don't play as much as I played like with BBA and Cactus. Yeah. As many notes all the time, yeah. But I play w- still with a lot of energy and a lot of uh, fills, yeah. you know. And uh, my fills can be as, as intricate as the job calls for, right. you know. Like with the Rascals, you know, I I, I don't do as intricate fills as what I do with Cactus. Sure. You know, because Cactus is more of a jam band. And, yeah. It's like showing off your playing, kind of, you know? Yeah, and different. The Rascals, it's all about the songs and the groove and the drive. Sure. Pushing the band, driving the band, you know? Yeah, and, and serving the song, right? Different songs call for different yeah. drums, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. So, but basically, on all the things I've done in my life, I've never really changed my style. I've uh, catered to the music with my style, but I never really changed, like, you know, 
I never changed from playing with the butt end. I never changed from playing match grip. I never changed from uh, playing, you know, light. Or, you know, I've always hit them pretty hard. And you know, that's how you get the sound out of the drums, you know? Right. Well, and it's uh, rock, and it's realistic rock. Can we talk for a second about, it's a legendary book, your ultimate realistic rock book. Right. Yeah. What inspired this, and, uh, you know, how did you come up with this? Well, you know, being a drummer that studied all my life, uh, you know, I didn't study all my life, but I studied. Uh, and I've went to different lessons with the uh, um um, different name guys in the city, Casadas. What is his name? Uh, uh, I went to a lesson with Tony Williams once. You know, really? Wow. Yeah, he was my friend, and I, I, I went anyway. <laughs> but uh, so I'd always go into like I lived in Long Island. There was one Sam. It was two Sam Ash stores at the time. One in Brooklyn, one in Long Island. And I used to go into the Long Island store and just go to the book section and look at what drum books are being published. You know because I went to all the classic books, and I was always looking for new ideas. And I saw this one book. I said, Learn Rock rock and Roll Drumming. And, you know, this is 1971. We all look like hippies with beards and long hair and tie-dyed stuff. And there was a guy on the cover like this, with his hair combed back like Elvis, wearing like an Elvis kind of shirt. And, and I said, what the hell is this? It was written by Joel Rothman, I think. And I looked at it and I said, oh, this material is so outdated and wrong. I mean, you'll never use this. You'll never do this groove. You'll never use this. So I said, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write it like the Chapin book where it's nice and clean. And I'm going to write it with rhythms that a guy can go through the book and go right into playing with a band. You know, and I'm going to have some drum fills in it and everything. So it took me 30 days with Cactus to write it. And in, in the day of writing it I um, I did it instead of partying every night with the band I'd go to my room and I'd write for two hours yeah. and then i go party yeah. you know and then I ended up with this book amazing. I gave it to my attorney who was at the time was you know Led Zeppelin's attorney the Rascals Jimi Hendrix Vanilla Fudge uh, I, he did have Herman's Hermits the Oddbirds you know little big bands in those days and I gave it to him and he got me a book deal on Robin's big three books, and they had the spiral, yeah, you know, and it had the the uh, the um, drawing on the cover of a painting that's on the cover now. Wow, that was a drawing of that painting that a girlfriend of mine did of me. Is that right? Like a, a, a caricature of me. Yeah. At the time, and then when I started changing drum company, I said I can't keep changing covers every time I change a company, like the Ludwig drums were on there for 20 years. Then I went with Mapex and, and Pearl, and I said, you know what, I'm going to just put a, a generic cover on. So I used the actual painting. Okay. I took a picture of the painting, and we used that. That's been on there for probably since 2005. Love it. You know? And, it. you know, and, and he said, hey, here's a book deal, here's $500 advance, and you own the copyright. I didn't even know what that meant right. at the time. You know, that was, you know, I don't know how old I was. I was in 71. I was 26 years old. I didn't know from copyrights. All I knew about was going on the road, playing, doing records, you know, picking up chicks and having a good time. You know, copyright, what's that? Right. But I found out later in years, it meant a lot. It's a good deal, right? Made a lot, made me a lot of money over the years because I owned the copyright. Right. And still going strong today? 
it's still it's, it's still going. I don't know how strong. You know, the strongest was uh, probably uh, in 2000, 2001 was my strongest sales. But, but it has sold 400,000 over the 40 years it's been out. You know, but late now, you know, the Internet, I mean, people rip it off. They, uh, we try and stop him. Uh, I downloaded my, a copy of my Realistic Rock in 18 seconds. Wow. You know, and, and on the site, I, I saw that it was downloaded 1,500 times. Mm. So that, to me, was a, a big chunk of royalty out the window. No question. You know, instead of selling an average eight to 10,000 a year, now I'm lucky if it sells 4,000 a year. You know, but it's still selling. Right. Yeah. It's I bought still... a copy, by the way. I have a copy, which I bought. Didn't, oh, nice, nice. didn't steal that. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, you know, this leads me to a question around the music business. And obviously things have changed. Um, seems like no other business. I mean, what do you make of all of this stuff? Of Oh, man, the musicians are getting ripped off big time, number one. You know, with the with Spotify and the. And the YouTube and everything, you know, nobody's getting paid any money. Right. There's no record sales anymore. Right. There's no CDs being sold. The vinyls that are being sold are selling, but they're not like the vinyls that used to sell. You sell a million vinyls. You know, you might, a big selling vinyl now is like 50,000, 60,000. You know, a big selling record is, number one record is probably 100,000 records. If you can reach that point, you're number one, right. you know. So there's no royalties anymore in writing. I mean, my songwriting royalties from Do You Think I'm Sexy until recently were huge every year. And then in the last five years, eight years, it dwindled down to, to almost what I was making with my, uh, my drum book, you know? And it used to be like 20 times my drum book, wow. you know? Yeah. So, you know, it's all changed, so... For me personally, I sold my songs back to the publishers, except for ASCAP. ASCAP's the only thing that still makes money, okay. you know, the airplay. Yeah. You know, but, uh, and a lot of musicians are getting their copyrights back on albums. Like, I've gotten a bunch back on my King Cobra records and stuff, but, you know, you got it back. You, you can't really do anything with it because there's nobody buying records anymore. Right, right. yeah. You know? And I feel bad for musicians coming up. I don't know how... First of all, I don't know how a band gets big today. I used to have, a, I used to know in the old days how a band gets big, how to get signed, and I didn't even know how a band gets signed unless you're. I took a band that I produced up to Atlantic Records, and they said, "Well, if you get five hundred thousand Facebook and five hundred thousand YouTubes, then we'll sign them." Wow. I go, well, "What do we need you for then?" <laughs> he said, "Well, then we'll take it from there and we'll turn it into millions." Okay, but you know, how does a, a band unknown get five hundred thousand Facebook, right. five hundred thousand YouTubes, right. and then you know, yep. and how do they get known? I mean, I remember years ago, the first time I experienced this was I read in the Village Voices band sold out the Garden one night. They added the second night, mm. right? And I read the name of the band. I said, I never heard of them. They were called the Black Keys. Sure. And now you heard of them. Yes. Right. Only because they sold out the garden. I would have never heard of them if, they didn't, if I didn't read that. Right. And then I went on YouTube and researched them, and I, I didn't know any of their songs. Yeah. You know, usually you sell out the garden twice. You, yeah. you know the songs. Yeah, usually yeah. you got a few smash records. Right. Sure. Not anymore. Yeah. 
I don't know how it works. Yeah. So what's your take on a band like Greta Van Fleet or these other young rock bands? Lucky. Yeah. Right. Lucky. Yeah. But they're not selling records. Right. They're selling Spotify and YouTube. My, my friends, they're publicists. Mm. Matter of fact, you know, not an ego story again, but their drummer, she told me his biggest mentor was me. Awesome. And they even do Cactus Evil when Is they play right? live. That's yeah, That's but they they were playing in L.A. and they wanted me to come down. And I read in Rolling Stone that their influences were, um, I forgot who it said, so-and-so, so-and-so, and commented a piece of Vanilla Fudge. And I was like blown away. And I had never heard of them then. And then I found out my friends, they're, they're, um, you know, they're a PR person. And she told me the whole story. They get signed on a demo, yeah. you know. So I think you're going to see a lot of that going on now. You know, like I have a young band I'm working with that's doing the same thing with Van Halen. Yeah. So more of a, a Van Halen sound with them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's their name but, and what are they doing? Uh, well, they, they're working on demos. I'm working with them and I'm turning them on to a, tomorrow we have a conference call with the a manager who's very, very good friends with the guy that signed Red Grand Van Fleet, okay. you know. So, but uh, I don't know if we have the right the right songs yet. But, okay. but we're going to work with them and try and get them signed. Okay. Yeah, could be the next. Because it happens, it's history repeats itself. That's right. That's when right. Motley Crue became big, the record company signed everything from LA that sounded like Motley Crue or heavy metal. That's right. And the labels, and this manager told me. Labels are already thinking this. Do you think that ship has already sailed music business-wise? That that's not coming back. We have to adapt to something different at this point. It's done. Done. It's not going to be a Beatles again. Right. It's not going to be another Led Zeppelin. Yeah. I mean, the closest thing. No, it's not the closest thing that there is to that is like Foo Fighters. Right. They were at the tail end of that. That's right. That's right. But all the big rock groups, there's no big rock groups selling out big venues by themselves, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, maybe the Foo Fighters might, right. but, you know, I don't know the other ones that, that sell it. But then again, I don't know half these bands anyway. Right. I never heard of half these bands. Yeah. Right. Do, you, do you have any favorite drummers of today? Um. It's hard to say because there's no new drum heroes. Yeah, right. You know, right. I mean, there's all these guys in these, these, uh, you know, the Metallica kind of, you know, spinoffs of Metallica with their fast bass drums, right. and like like uh, uh, Event Sevenfold, mm-hmm. in a, for instance, you know, the original drummer, he was awesome. Right. You know, yeah. he was a great great player. Right. You know, but they play the same exact thing every night. You know, like uh, Vinnie Paul, you know, started at that. The Ray, 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 who's with Corn, is an awesome drummer. He's not new, right? You know, right. and I, I, I did an interview, a Skype interview with a music school a couple of years ago, and I asked them, "Who are your new, you know, icons?" Yeah. And they didn't have any. Didn't There's have a guy any. named uh, Zoltan Cheney is his name. Okay. Look him up. Yeah. Do you remember that video of the guy, Steve, that played the, the guy with the wrong gig? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he's doing all that stuff. That's great. 
but he's playing, he's standing up, he's hitting the cymbals with his feet. Wow. I mean, Amazing. It's incredible showman. Yeah. Incredible showman. Excellent. I mean, he's a new guy, I would say, is pretty awesome. Yeah. Because, you know, even though he's playing cymbal, he's got chops when he, when he wants it. But he's doing all this stuff, man. He's like incredible, you know? Yeah. That's you know, cool. but, you know, I just discovered him recently, okay. you know? Well, and uh, not, you know, I don't know the names of guys. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of guys that are really great, you know, but you don't know who the, what their names are because there's no magazines, there's no MTV anymore. There's no, you know, unless you're searching YouTube, right. which I don't really sit down and search YouTube. True. You know, I used to hear new bands on the radio. Right. Exactly. Don't have that no more. Right. And we don't have. Am I still? Yeah. And we don't have uh, magazines. We don't have radio. And we don't have television. Right. Well, there's nothing new on uh, MTV. Even MTV too. You know, I never sit down and watch that. You know. Well, one drum hero you certainly met and talked about in your book was Buddy Rich. Oh, he was the man. He was the man. Can you tell us a little of your relationship with him and, and your experience with him? Well, I had a lot of fun experiences. When, you know, when I first met him, my uh, manager was friends with his manager and this club owner from uh, L.A. And Buddy was going to play there. And my manager said, hey, man, I think you should play with Buddy Rich the same stage was video it for Showtime. Mm. Showtime was the first cable thing, you know, with Connected Generations. And I said, I don't know. I don't want to play with Buddy Rich. Because I heard the bus tape, you yeah, know. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, I said, I don't want to play with him. I knew his daughter, okay. you know. And so anyway, it happened. Then it fell apart. I was glad. I went to the show to see him and and. I took Vinny with me, my brother, and we were up in the balcony. And his daughter comes out, come on, oh, I didn't think you were going to come. I said, why? He goes, because my father's really pissed off at you. And I'm thinking, all oh, right, he's pissed off at me, the bus tape. Here we go. Right, right. He said, so, I said, why is he mad at me? He said, well, you challenged him to a drum battle like that asshole Ginger Baker was his words for press. And I said, I did not. Right. You know, I didn't do that. I, you know, and I told her the story. So that's it. I said, that's it. Well, come on back and tell Buddy that. I said, I'm not going back there and tell him that if he's mad at me. So he goes, come on, come on. It'll be all right. So Vinny, you come with me. So Vinny went with me, went in there, and he, she said, Dad, this is that Buddy. She called him Buddy. Buddy, this is the guy that was going to play. Oh, you mean that asshole that was going to like that other guy, Ginger Baker? I said, no, that's not the story. I said, we both play Ludwig drums and blah, 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 blah. So he said, that's it? I said, yeah, that's it. I said, you know, you were like my first guy I ever listened to, you know. I'm not challenging you. He said, oh. He said, do you smoke? I said, no. you smoke? No, I don't smoke. Do you smoke? I said, what do you mean? Pot? He said, yeah. Yeah, I smoke a little pot. He goes, good. And he reaches in, lights up a joint on chocolate papers, hands it to me. I take a hit. I give it to Vinny. I'm going, I can't believe this. I'm smoking a joint with Buddy Rich. Oh, my God. You know, and and then we became friends after that. And he, you know, and the drum offs that I used to do, the guitar center stole from me. Uh, I did the first five. And the second one I did, we had 10,000 people there in the park in in, uh, in uh, Griffith Park. It was Carmine of Peace Day. And my manager called me. I was out with Rod. And he said, it's Carmine of Peace Day. You're going to be Carmine of Peace Day. And Buddy Rich is going to be a judge. And I'm thinking, Buddy hates rock drummers. He ain't going to be a judge. He was a judge. Wow. 
incredible. And we became friends, and we were going to do a record together, uh, uh, back-to-back, Carmen and Peace, Buddy Rich, and Stanley Clark was going to produce it, and we could never get all of our schedules together. And then he got sick, and I visited him in hospital, and went to his funeral, I became friends with the family, and, you know, he was just a great guy. And the funny thing, one funny story was the Muppets. When he did the Muppet show, uh, it came. That was my idea to do that, but I wanted to do it. And long story short, uh, when I went to Australia, these people said I looked like Mu- this Muppet, the animal. When I played, I had the curly hair and the build the drums all over, and I was really bouncing my head around. I never heard of the you know animal. And they showed me a video of it. I said, oh wow, maybe you're right. Yeah. So I went back to my manager. I said, I want to challenge. Up, uh, this Muppet guy, Animal, to a drum battle. Now, okay, I'll call Jim Henson studio. He calls him. And they said, oh, that's an interesting idea. We'll get back to you. Call back. We love the idea. We got good news and bad news. What's the good news? We love the idea. We're definitely going to do it. What's the bad news? We're going to use Buddy Rich. <laughs> so I called Buddy. I said, I heard you're doing the Muppet show. He goes, how do you know? I said, this was my idea. He goes, hey, they wanted the best. <laughs> So I said, yeah, F you, you bastard. <laughs> so we were, we were friends, you know. It was, it was, yeah. And it was to me, it was amazing because yeah. it must have been like John Bonham was when he met me, you know. Right. Right. Or, you know, like when I met Joe Morello, you know. I mean, that was like, I, I was in awe, you know. Yeah. Your music heroes, right? And and, you and get then he became friends and, and, and it became like a person. Right. Did you ever get to jam with him? Maybe not a drum battle, but... Just, yeah, yeah. At, at my drum off, uh, yeah. just a drum battle. The drum battle. Because at, the, at my drum, at my drum off, so the, the the climax was always all the judges played together. Wow. We all took fours, and of course, who wants to follow Buddy? Right, right. Yeah. I said Vinny, you got fast foot and fast hands. I don't want to follow Buddy. What about uh, Michael DeRosa? I don't want to follow Buddy. Right. Jocko from Shawnana. I don't want to follow right. Phil. Phil from Kansas. I don't want to follow. Right. You know, right. Uh, Bruce from the Neck. I said, you know what? You're all a bunch of wimps. I'll follow Buddy. I got double bass drum. <laughs> and I followed Buddy. Yeah. Just and it was great. Yeah. It was great. Just incredible. And we became friends, you know? Yeah. It must have been a, a very cool thing, you know, making friends with your music hero. And, and, and at any time, you could say, hey, how did you do this or that from the record? Or whatever, well, right? I, I never did that. No. We never talked drums. No. Interesting. We never talked drums. Other than in the helicopter... You know, we the deal was he appeared at my drum off in the afternoon. At night, he was playing at Disneyland, okay. which he always played. Yeah. And we had eyewitness news at the drum off. Okay. And in the helicopter was the eyewitness news camera. Okay. You know, and his buddy was in the front. I was in the, in the back seat. Next to me was the eyewitness news, and the pilot was on the right. So the camera was on Buddy and me. So Buddy said, he turned around, and goes, this is my friend Carmine Apiece. He's a great drummer. But what do I know? <laughs> you know, and I went, well, oh, my God. You right, know, right. it's like flipping out. No doubt. And that was all, that's all we, the camera took yeah. on there. And then we just talked about him going to his gig. And, you know, I said, I'm looking forward to hearing you play. Yeah. yeah. I, went to, I saw him there a bunch of times. One time when I had color, first put the color in my head, they wouldn't let me in. Really? Because I, I looked like a punk rocker. They wouldn't let me in. I had my wife at the time had a, a broken ankle. She was in a wheelchair. I said, give me a break. Yeah. I said, I got my wife in a wheelchair. I pay 
big taxes to the state in this country. Right. And uh, you're not going to let me in because I have red in my hair? Right. So they called Buddy. I said, call Buddy Rich. Yeah. Buddy Rich, I'm here to see Buddy. I'm his friend. I'm on his guest list. Mm. They called Buddy and I said, if you don't let him in, I'm not going on. Wow. That's good. <laughs> and they let me in. Yeah. As they should have, right? My God. Yeah. And then, of course, we smoked a joint in the, in the locker room, <laughs> which was totally against the, all the laws in Disneyland. <laughs> But it's rock and roll and jazz. We're breaking the rules, right? So on my Facebook page, I put out that we were meeting and interviewing, and I got asked folks to say their questions that they wanted to ask you. Um, a gentleman named Duncan Branham asks, can you play 5-4 in a 3-2 form rather than straight 5? Does that make sense? 3-2? I don't see why you'd want to do that. I mean, probably. You know, you're going one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, do do get that, do that, do You know, but, you know, it's like playing four, four, and three and one. Right. right. There you know? isn't much uh, musical call for that, right? No. I mean, usually if you're playing five, four, you're playing a five, eight, or seven, eight, you're playing straight across, unless, unless the riff that you're playing goes like that, you know? Yeah. Would you there's say... Actually, there's a Rascal song that actually does that. It's called um, uh, Real Thing. It goes through one, two, three, one, two. Okay. Yeah. Because that's the way the riff goes. Got it. But you, but you don't play it. Uh, you know, you play it as a bar of five. Got it. Are, are you counting when you're playing? Not usually. No. You just play at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Was that ever the case for you, counting? Not really. When, when, I, when I was learning, like, linear stuff, or when yeah. I was learning to play 7-8 timing and 9-8 and 13-8 yeah. and 15-8 and 5-4, yeah, I would count. Yeah. Okay. yeah. But now, you know, you get to a point where it gets in, in your body and you feel right. it's in the blood. That's right. Exactly. Muscle memory, right? So yeah, yeah. we got Dave Ferris asking, you've been playing dates with Felix and Gene of the Rascals this summer. How much of an influence was Dino Dinelli on your playing? Well, Dino was an influence when I was younger. Um, and uh, before he was in the Rascals, as I talked about before. And he um, he kept being an influence all the way through the beginning of Vanilla Fudge because he was awesome. He was a tremendous player. He was a great, like, R&B rock player, you know, with some jazz overtones, some Gene Krupa overtones, fast hands, good-sounding bass drums, had com good combinations, great showman, where he you know, do his sticks, and, you know, yeah. he was awesome. Let's talk briefly about you and your brother. I mean, you've got a musical family going on. Are there some more drum battles in store for us? Yep, we're, we're doing more more gigs in October and November. Right. And, you know, and Vinny is one of seven drummers in my family, wow. you know, my father's side of the family. Nice. And, uh, but, you know, I noticed when I left the drum set home and I went home one day and, you know, and, and he pulled me in the room and said, Come, listen to this, you know. And he starts playing a groove with Phil's. And I said, Wow. My mother said, what do you think? I said, wow, it sounds great. I said, we sh what do you think we should do? I said, we should send him to my teacher while he's young. He was like nine years old, you know? So 
she said, okay, he's driving me crazy like you did. So I wrote a song on our album called Brothers and Drums. Uh, and the lyrics is, you know, it started in Brooklyn down on 41st Street, me, my family, trying to figure what we want to be. There was no little Vinny when I started to play. Then later, years later, I found, my, I thought, never thought I'd hear my brother say he loved the drums like I did, and we played them for you. And he, I, he practiced you know, with a drum set I left at home. He, he practiced, uh, I forgot the exact lyric, he practiced uh, uh, something to the bone. And uh, my mother said, he's driving me crazy like you did. Now we're brothers in drums. You know? I love it. It's a really, really cool lyric, you know, and it just came to me. You know, once I came with the title Brothers and Drums, I said, oh, this is cool. It's awesome. And, 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 you know, and, and he grew up and I mean, I was just with Rick Derringer on the Hippie Fest tour. And I, I reminisced about the day he called my mother, he called my mother's house asking for Vinny. And my mother said, oh, hi, Mrs. Apice at the time. Uh, this is Rick Derringer. Is Vinny there? Oh, no, you want Carmine. No, no, I want Vinny. No, no, you, you want Carmine? No, Mrs. Apice, I'm calling for Vinny. I want Vinny to join my band. Wow. She couldn't believe that, you know, Rick Derringer, who was a name at the time, sure. was calling for Vinny. Wow. You know, he was 16 years old. He played with John Lennon, playing with Rick Derringer. He quit high school. Mm -hmm. He's 17. He's out on the road opening up for Aerosmith in stadiums with Rick Derringer. Wow. You know? Yeah, and I had nothing to do with it other than sending him to, to the lessons and, and help him along the way whenever I went home, you know? Right. Well, it certainly sounds like you inspired him as a big brother oh, tell, in your yeah, success, tell. right? Your success. Yeah, I mean, my mother used to take him to all the shows and film wars, and yeah. he'd see me on Ed Sullivan. All the, we did all these different TV shows, right. you know? Right. There's a, a show uh, where we did, uh, I had the big bass drums and everything, I was just, my hands were up here, and I was just killing it, yeah. you know, killing it. Right. And Vinny's uh, watching. He said, I want to do that. And then, then on the record, we did this thing where he said, is that my brother on TV? That's what I want to be, you know. <laughs> he wouldn't say it. I did it in a kiddie voice. But he, would, he wouldn't say it. He wouldn't do it. No, he didn't want to do it. That's I did fantastic. It. That's fantastic. Uh, the other question that I had, uh, and and just briefly too, we talked about this last time, but you ended up playing on Pink Floyd's album "Momentary Lapse of Reason." Can you recap yes. that story for me, please? Well, you know, it was late late eighties. Uh, I was with Blue Murder at the time, and uh, we were home. I don't know, waiting for something. I I don't know what we were home for, and I got a message by Bob Ezrin. On my answer machine, he said, Carmine, I got, I'm producing a record that's uh, screaming for Carmine drum fills. I go, really? What is that? I'm, I can't imagine what it is. And I call him. He said, it's Pink Floyd. I go, Pink Floyd? Like, Where's Nick? Yeah, I knew all those guys. We did tours with him with Vanilla Fudge. Yeah, Nick is racing his Ferraris, and he, his calluses are soft, and they wanted to get some new blood. And this song is just screaming for your fills. I said, wow, Okay. So I went down, I got paid a fee, and uh, spent the whole day, and they filled up two 24 tracks at a time. And, and you know, I played to a four-track. I was there 12 hours doing it. Mm. And, and then I never heard the finished product. So every time I called Bob, you know, he was putting the drum part together from all the different takes. Every time I called, you know, I said, how is it? He goes, in one word, amazing. In one word, dramatic. 
and one word, you know, thumping, and one word, you know, just all these silly words. And so, well, when can I hear it? And so, as soon as I finished, so as I, I never got to hear it. And I was doing a movie up in Canada. Uh, I was appearing in this movie called Black Rose Roses. I did the soundtrack for it and, and wanted me to play drums. It was, a, it was a movie about a musician band that was taken over by the devil. It was a heavy metal movie. And uh, and I heard that Pink Floyd album was coming out. So downstairs, they used to have these malls underneath the ground because the weather was so bad. So I went downstairs, found a record store, which you can't do today. Right? And I, I bought the cassette. So I had the, I had the uh, Walkman. I bought the cassette. And I played it for the first time for myself in the room, and it was awesome. I said, God, I'm on a Pink Floyd album. Right. You know? And then they went out on tour and they played that song, yeah. and they had, what's his name, trying to play, uh, Nick Mason, trying to play my song, my, my fills. Right. I got to say, he had a hard time with it. <laughs> right. Yeah, great drummer, of course, Nick Mason. Yeah, but I mean, a different but, type you know, of drummer. he did have double bass drum. Right. Right. He was very laid back. He didn't have that kind of fire that I always had, you know. That's, that's and a matter of fact, I have a drum head that uh, I'll send it to you. It says I'm selling it on the Rascal Tour. It's a picture of me, you know, like one of my stances like that, ready to kill something. <laughs> and then there's a little bit of uh, I superimposed some fire. And it says Karma out of Peace, Fire and Fury. Wow. I used when Trump said that about North Korea. I said, "What a great line! I got to use that for something." So I use it on that. Amazing, and it was "Dogs of War," the song. "Dogs of War" was the track. "Dogs of War" was the track. Amazing. And and after the track started with no drum, when the drums came in, it was like King Kong. You know, big drum sound, big, big, big fill into the six eight groove, and then lots of fills around that six eight feel. Yeah, Yeah, amazing song. Yeah. Lastly, Carmine, you've had such an amazing career in rock and roll, ups and downs, great books, the author of Stick It and The Ultimate Realistic Rock. Where do you see music going for you at this point? Where do you want it to go for you? I'm just going where, you know, what I've been doing. Hopefully I can get to do another record with my brother. I know it's not going to sell gold, but, you know, it was fun to do and it's fun to promote and, and fun to write the songs. You know, I'm still playing with Vanilla Fudge. You know, Vanilla Fudge just did a DVD. You know, with, again, all these, all these projects are not going to sell platinum and gold. But, you know, with Vanilla Fudge, you know, gets Audi, Audi car commercials and we get into movies, you know, soundtracks and stuff. So I anticipate that's still going to continue. And playing with the Fudge, Rascal, maybe do some shows with King Cobra. Uh, we're talking about maybe doing King Cobra and Last in Line, which my brother's in, which has got Vivian Campbell in it, you know. Amazing. And uh, King Cobra and Last in Line would be a good good heavy metal show from the 80s kind of show. Sure. And, you know, just keep playing and real estate on the side. I collect cars and I'm having a, I'm having a great life, yeah. you know. Yeah. I have, a great, I have a great wife, girlfriend. You know, we've been together 16 years. My kids are growing up. They're doing great. And I got a great family, and you know, yeah. I'm reading the Bible for the first time in my life. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I always loved all those stories. I saw all those movies, and now reading it, it's. Uh, I'm actually not reading; I'm listening to it. Okay. You know, wow. but it's interesting because I could be driving and listening, and sure. and it's amazing stories. And you know, and I'm trying to be a better person yeah. with it. Yeah. 
and you you know that's why i'm talking to you for two hours that's right (laughs) (laughs) and i am so appreciative of you carmine i am a fan thank you so much sincerely for your music and for being on musicians on the record today no problem man it was a lot of fun you had good questions all, all the way through and i appreciate that Thank you so much, Carmine Apice, for being on Musicians on the Record today. What incredible stories. Hearing about his inspiration for drumming from Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich, being friends, buddies with Buddy Rich. That was awesome. Playing with the Vanilla Fudge, appearing on Ed Sullivan, playing with Jeff Beck, Rod Stewart, hanging out with Jimi Hendrix and John Bonham, and oh yes, a certain Led Zeppelin legendary story from back in the day as well. Incredible classic rock stories from Carmine Apiece. I love it. Hope you loved it too, and if you know another classic rock geek like me, please share it with them so that they can enjoy it too. This is the show where we bring you the musician's story. We'd love to hear from you wherever you're listening from in the world, and let us know which musician's story you'd most love to hear. Please subscribe to the audio podcast here, and you can watch all of these videos too. We film them first, and then they live here on iTunes and anywhere else you listen to the podcast But our videos live on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all at Musicians on the Record, and our website, of course, MusiciansOnTheRecord.com. Until next time, let's keep it all about the music. I'm David Ward from Musicians on the Record. Thanks for listening.